Welcome to the Measuring What Matters podcast. Measuring What Matters is an independent community forum for nurturing dialogue and critical conversations associated with community performance metrics. Join me, Marshall McCallum, as I interview individuals entrenched in change-making in Calgary. Our guests are passionate about community prosperity, well-being, and how to measure it. Measuring What Matters is a project of the City X Lab, hosted and powered by the Institute for Community Prosperity at Mount Royal University. For more information on the project, visit measuringwhatmatters.ca. Uh, today we have with us Dr. Catherine McGowan, a personal hero of mine and a teacher of many classes. <laughs> Hi, Catherine. How are you doing today? Thank, I'm good, Marshall. Thank you. Um, a little bit uncomfortable with the hero epithet, but we'll see if I can live up to it. Uh, well, uh, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Um, so I am an associate professor of social innovation at Mount Royal University. Um, I came to Calgary in the summer of 2015 uh, from the University of Waterloo, where I had done both my undergraduate, my doctorate, as well as my daycare. Um, so a bit of a, of a shift. My background academically is actually in Canadian history, um, and I pivoted to social innovation in the last term of my graduate studies, partially out of an interest in sort of expanding what I could do, but also an interest in applying some of what we were doing in history to real life questions. Uh, and I spent about um, three or so years at a think tank at the University of Waterloo called the Waterloo Institute for Social Innovation and Resilience, where we did a lot of that early foundational work around applying a historical lens to, to social innovation. Social innovation is tied heavily with um, how we're measuring well-being and prosperity now uh, because there's all of these uh, intangible aspects to it, right? The, all of these subjective measures of, of well-being. Um, can you tell me a little bit about um, the history where those started to coincide or collide? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, one of the big things that's dogged social innovation for at least the last 20 years, if not for the last 60, has been this question of measuring what and for what purpose um, and making sure that whatever one measures sort of um, is embedded into the social innovation design uh, that one is employing in the community. If we go back to the 1960s, this isn't actually what you probably want to hear, but if we go back to the 1960s, one of the first concrete social innovation research agenda was predicated on the idea that we could test uh, and refine social innovation approaches to complex questions, in particular racial questions in the United States, using kind of an adopted clinical trial method so that you could try it, you could have like a control community and then you could try out your uh, proposed intervention in five or six comparable communities. Now, <laughs> When this was designed, it didn't actually build in any assumption that the community either needed to be consulted, needed to be involved, or needed to be involved in the back end in, in, in innovation and in evaluation. And instead, it was sort of, it was based on this idea that the uh, abstract um, objective observer could better understand what was actually functioning. And in that, you can see a lot of the pivots that have happened since the 1960s. So in particular, the idea of, of involving community from the very beginning of a project uh, to, all the way to the end of the evaluation has now become the norm, especially in the last 20 years, as well as the acknowledgement of two related and really challenging things. 
So the first is that social innovation is often brought into a community because there is an acknowledgement that existing solutions do not work. And so we need to find either new ways of combining existing solutions or entirely new approaches to the problems themselves. So that's point one. Point two is that the nature of those complex questions that demand a social innovation approach actually defy easy measurement. So they are nonlinear. They have multi-causations or interdependencies. And, and that is true of the problem, and it's also true of the intervention. And so we have this tension where we know we need social, or we think we need social innovation because of how challenging the problem is, and we also are kind of stuck uh, with traditional metrics of, or traditional measurements in that space. So we both need social innovation, but we also need a new way of measuring what we're actually doing to make sure that we achieve impact. And that really, that has been um, in development since actually that first effort in the 1960s. There's a fantastic review of the book that sort of codified that approach in 1967. Um, and it basically said this book is 400 and uh, some odd pages too long. Um, and it was 410 pages long, if you know what I mean. And the suggestion even at the time was that this was not adequately taking into account some of the emerging ideas around community-based research and um, community-based action. And since that time, you know, increasingly social innovation scholars have asked meaningful questions about how they can involve community and find ways of measuring the quantitative and qualitative aspects of what they are both trying to do and the problems they're trying to address. Whether or not they have solved that question, that is an entirely different uh, issue to discuss. Yeah, it seems, um, in, at least in the research that I've done in my brief time with it, um, that every couple of years there's always something new that pops up or like a new idea, a new aspect. Uh, especially if you look at it from like a global front, everyone seems to be trying to do something in a different way. Um, and that's where a lot of the confusion comes in with measurement when they're trying to measure things laterally against other countries or against other cities, because no one's really got the, the same perspective of it. And be, because things like prosperity and well-being are so ambiguous. You don't even have to go that far. Um, I wasn't anticipating telling this story, but you know, it merits inclusion. Um, there was, I was involved in a project called Social Prosperity Wood Buffalo that, that brought together the University of Waterloo and Fort McMurray, or specifically the regional municipality of Wood Buffalo. And it was meant to actually both explore and support community prosperity. And this was particularly during the last major boom. So economic prosperity writ large was not a problem in Fort McMurray, but it wasn't well distributed. And the project's sort of beginning hypothesis was that Waterloo Region, which, was, which had had BlackBerry as a primary employer, had gone through a uh, economic disruption when BlackBerry had sort of imploded. And that therefore it had lessons to teach Fort McMurray in advance of the next collapse. Um, and so the first 18 months of that project, um, they tried to bring people up and pair them together. And they even tried to come up with, they called them the water buffaloes. Um, Waterloo plus wood yeah. buffalo equals water buffaloes. And it just, it just didn't work. There, was, there wasn't really a mutually understandable definition of prosperity that was happening. People often use the same language, but they didn't have the same sort of understanding of what that language actually meant. And that has consistently been one of the issues I have observed when we engage in questions around community prosperity. Between Waterloo and Wood Buffalo, um, same language, but not the same understanding of what they were trying to achieve. 
And so it took an entire refit and reimagine just to make that project actually function. Terms like prosperity and community prosperity, they sound wonderful. And of course, everyone wants a prosperous community. Um, but that sort of surface level of sense of sort of what we mean really falls apart when we start to both bring in evaluation. But as you said, when we try to bring in comparisons, that's where we start to see that that um, that we can't assume there is a sympathy just on its face. Was there problems with assumption in what uh, prosperity they wanted in the Wood Buffalo area? So it depends on what you mean by they. Um, and again, here's where measurement kind of comes into it. Um, so the, the project included people from um, United Way, from the municipality itself, from Suncor, from several key so, uh, social enterprises and social purpose organizations. Um, in, in Fort McMurray, as well as their, their equals in Waterloo. And I think, um, I think that there was a risk that sort of this seemed like a one-way transfer of knowledge. Um, and, and the idea of replicating what had worked in Waterloo in a second location. And that, that didn't take into account some of the really basic realities on the ground in Fort McMurray. Uh, the, the other piece was we did not have trust so when we went into this community, although we had the support of one of the major funders in the community, there was a sense, uh, and this was something that people actually articulated when we did sort of a after the fact evaluation, um, was that, you know, okay, our founder is telling us we have to do this, so I guess let's just do it. But you weren't really getting sort of a grassroots uh, from people's lived experience, understanding of what prosperity meant. You had people sort of trying to anticipate what the funder wanted and be, be where they were going to be. And that perhaps is one of the most important things that I have observed and I have seen from some of my colleagues in the evaluation field globally. It's the importance of both trust, uh, but also um, the way that trust and community relationships and reciprocal relationships can open the door to a more robust understanding of what the community believes prosperity means for them. Mm -hmm. It sounds a little bit like a lesson in uh, adaptive facilitation, right? like really having individuals from a community tell you what the problem is rather than you coming in and saying, well, I see that you have this problem. Yeah, that's that's very, very true. And yet, you know, we we great facilitators, um, and I'm not speaking about anyone in particular, but great facilitators still often make that assumption. And sometimes it's based on data, you know, going into this sort of seeing this a lot. But nothing can, even the best data can't replace the sense of people being seen and people being feeling like they're being seen um, in this kind of space. In your mind, what would be the best kind of um, aspects? Like how, how can we build that trust, like going into, uh, going into an area or how can an area kind of bring up and create their own uh, metrics? So I would, I would actually start with the second half. I would start with sort of what does a community actually want? It, this, this sometimes does require unpacking. Um, unpacking in terms of it, a community can say that we want to have X and then their actions don't match up with that. And that's an important piece of information. Um, some, some researchers who work with communities that they are not a part of will actually do sort of pre-work games with the communities. So say like, you know, plan for me the perfect space. Working with the community and in service of the community um, as you're essentially a set of tools. And you, but, but those tools are broad and the community may only need a few of them. So you need to figure out exactly what tools are best suited for what the community is looking for. 
Yeah, it sounds like um, it's very much staged, a staged kind of process. Where, uh, as an example, from what I'm kind of gathering from it, uh, what uh, New Zealand's doing with their living standards framework, um, they've created a, a sort of a mapping of points to so that people can actually go onto the website and look at their area and how well that area is doing in inclusivity or how well that area is doing economically or in the housing community how, how much uh, availability they have if there's uh, a high uh, amount of homelessness or you know different areas and then from that when individuals see themselves in those and represented in those kind of situations they'll be more open to providing more data for like a second iteration or like an evolving of that framework it's yet it's a very good way to think about it crowdsourced data allows us to sort of better demonstrate a lot of those steps uh and and also sort of again show people data in a way that makes sense to them and is consistent with the way that they sort of function in the world but you're right, it is thinking about it in steps can be very helpful. It also helps you check your assumptions. You can go into to a process as a social innovator um, with the best of intentions and, and be listening all the way, but there can be distant early warning signs that you are diverging from the organization or group that you are functioning with. And the only way you're going to catch those warning signs is if you have these touch points of check-ins and accountability. So looking at it from uh, Calgary's perspective now, um, Calgary is one of the most diverse cities in Canada. I think we rank somewhere like third or fourth right now. Um, how do we make sure that we are inclusive for all of these different communities and all of these different uh, individuals um, so that they can trust us to, uh, to uh, best present their data? Those are excellent questions. Um, and my answer is going to be, is not going to be necessarily what you want to hear. Um, but one of the big ones is relationships. If you have relationships, authentic reciprocal relationships with an organization, with different organizations, it improves the likelihood of, of trust. Um, and that's important. Uh, it's also important to think about, um, it's also important to think about the qualitative as well as quantitative metrics. So for instance, storytelling. Um, oral histories uh, can be a really helpful way to connect people in with sort of uh, experience. And lastly, is that thinking about how you then communicate that back in an accountable way. Um, the more that you do that, the more you will build trust with that organization. Uh, we used to make a lot of jokes about sort of reports uh, collecting dust on um, bookshelves when I was working in Fort McMurray. And it's because that had been their experience. Fantastic evaluators would come in globally. They would pinpoint exactly what they said was wrong with the community, uh, which of course didn't make the community feel great about itself. And then they would walk away. And, mm -hmm. and oftentimes the data sets that they would create would be private. Uh, and then the report would maybe be launched, maybe it'd be available online, but it was a report. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't take into account sort of visual learners or auditory learners or even sort of experiential learning. Um, and it was completely unusable from an organizational perspective. You couldn't take the findings and integrate them into your next proposal to your funder uh, because they were in, they only made sense to the person who created the report. So one so shifting those things and thinking about how is this going to be used? How is this meaning going to be understood uh, are really critical for making sure that whatever measurement project you have addresses those basic needs of any meaningful social motivation intervention. So now kind of holding your feet to the fire a little bit, if I can, um, 
Do you think that there are any opportunities emerging, like currently either in Calgary or like globally, that uh, could shift the dynamic? Uh, maybe boundaries that are being tested currently because of the pandemic or uh, something of that regard? <laughs> I, am, I am perennially hopeful. Um, <laughs> uh, so yes, actually I do. So there's, first of all, the pandemic in a really strange way has allowed for some international collaborations around things like transformation that might not have been as easy to do otherwise. When you physically can't gather, sometimes that actually increases the number of people who will gather online. It's so expensive to travel, it's such a huge amount of people's time that you often see these really small one-offs, like five people here, four people there. Um, and then once the pandemic hit, all of a sudden, I was parts of groups of 40 or 60 uh, of evaluators and people interested in transformation from a global perspective uh, and have been able to connect with people in South America and in Zimbabwe, in, um, in India, in New Zealand, a lot in the United Kingdom. And each of these opportunities is a learning opportunity. Each of these opportunities has brought people together who share a common commitment to understanding how transformation happens. That's, I hope, did that answer your question at it, all? It, it does, it does. <laughs> Actually, um, I think it starts to answer a little bit about what we were talking about at the beginning of this interview um, with regards to the problem of well-being and prosperity being a lot of uh, communication. Um, it's just not understanding or not having the same understanding of what that means or what you're looking for. And so with this new collaboration and all of these individuals coming together, um, there has to be a, a kind of um, a central language right, or a central understanding. Uh, even if there isn't one moment, like at this moment, it will have to develop right, as people come together. Uh, it's sort of like... Uh, uh, the Rosetta Stone, right? A, a crossing of all of these different cultures and ideas coming together and they, they must find a way to um, talk to each other so that they can collaborate clearly. Um, so because of this pandemic, maybe this is the catalyst that has created uh, an opportunity for more understanding uh, of a level playing field. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I was surprised actually by how quickly mutual understanding emerged in the space. So this Rosetta Stone got carved very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, but I will say that be careful. It's possible, like right now we're still in it, if you know mm -hmm. what I mean. Um, but that's not uncommon to see a snapback or, a, or an effort at snapback after we mm -hmm. see a kind of a crisis. Um, and it's partially because there's a sort of a natural psychological desire to kind of get back to normal. Mm -hmm. um, but also there's often sort of other forces, uh, structural attractors in the system who are pulling it. So it's so when it comes to thinking about measurement in the post-pandemic period, be cautious about the kinds of things that are privileged. Because, you know, whether it's, I mean, we see this in our own, the stock market, for instance, this effort to kind of keep the stock market high, or this effort to sort of look at things like, um, you know, the housing market and how that's selling. Those may not necessarily capture the full experience and the disruption that is involved in um, a global event of this scale. And so it's possible that the transformation groups that I'm a part of are part of that distant early warning shift. Um, and I hope that they are because these are fantastic human beings. But, you know, I think there's going to be an interesting conversation in the next five years about whether or not we actually see change. And it'll be the, the job of evaluators and people in spaces like the one that you are in 
to make sure that people don't overemphasize the kinds of measurements and the kinds of ways of measuring that are best aligned with the snapback and instead sort of keep an open mind for those wider signs of potential social change. Well, I'm, I'm just ever the optimist. <laughs> I can definitely see um, there being problems with rigidity, uh, especially with systems like um, uh, constantly having to have a higher GDP or higher uh, income to, to justify prosperity or to justify mm -hmm. growth in a city. And if a city is not growing, then it's not prospering and everyone must be doing terrible, right? Yeah, I, I just, I think that uh, this should be this should be a catalyst or at least i hope it's a catalyst for for that change right question That's is how long are you willing to wait it's likely that there will be change mm -hmm. you know you you're hoping for a shorter time frame uh <laughs> yeah. than that i can guarantee <laughs> and certainly that history might indicate but you know it's it's important to think about sort of yeah some of the assumptions behind some of these so there's a was kind of a whiggish assumption that um increased economic prosperity is what leads to increased um, social equality. And so the, the richer a society becomes, the easier it is to sort of share rights. And that that's sort of an important one too. And it's it, it hasn't as an explicit assumption, it's fallen out of favor, but it's still often implicit in a lot of the ways that policy is driven. Um, secondly, there have been a number of social innovation initiatives, including ones in the United States, that have tried to build in sort of developing measurement metrics as they go. But that often means that you actually develop the initiative to the metrics you can do rather than the other way around. And, you know, we've seen that that doesn't necessarily, that often, yeah, you're like, wow, I got fantastic results, but that's because you're teaching to the test. You're not mm -hmm. teaching the skills that needs, that need to be sort of embodied in the world. So knowing what you know now, uh, <laughs> which is a terrible way to start any sentence, but uh, knowing what you know now and, and going back into it, if you were to design uh, something like the Canadian Index of Wellbeing, if you were going to try to design your own system um, and you had unlimited resources, you could, you could talk to anybody, there, there was no, uh, no limit on time, uh, how would you go about doing it? What's, what's your process? What's the most important thing for you? So I, I personally like the Canadian Index of Wellbeing. So what I'm about to say shouldn't be interpreted as an attack on them um, in any way, shape or form. Um, I hope to be able to go home sometime. <laughs> I hope to be able to see these people. Uh, I the One of the big things I would probably do that I don't necessarily always see being done is spend time with the elders of whatever community I was working in. Um, and assuming I'm assuming here I'm designing something in a, in situ rather than let's say nationally or at least in situ first, yes. because I think once you actually and this is my academic hat coming out, once you actually figure out how to do these things, in theory you can scale them. It's just then you know sort of who you should talk to and 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 you're prepared for some of the problems that you will face. You won't avoid them, but you'll like you'll know there's a rock there if you know what I mean. Um, thinking about like canoeing through a sort of a rapid river. It's like, okay, I know there's a rock somewhere in this area. <laughs> so I'm bracing for impact. Um, I, yeah, I would probably start with, with elders um, for whatever community was there. For a couple of reasons, I would. it's important to know sort of the long history of an area. It's important to connect with the land of an area, but it's also important to think about storytelling as a form of measurement. Um, I also believe that if you if you sort of start with strong foundations, 
epistemological and theoretical foundations that in theory it it's not it's not impossible to bring in economists and bring in social geographers and bring in um uh you know people who who are data driven it's it's not easy but it should be doable and i think that starting with elders and starting with story and starting with spirit um allows us to sort of start off by questioning our assumptions. What you don't want to do is just do a slightly better or slightly more frequent example of the census. There are actually some pretty skilled people who work at the census um, nationally. Doesn't always mean that you get the best results, but the key is that, you know, there are people who know what they're doing. But if your job is to, is to understand sort of transformation, you don't just replicate that. You need to think more broadly. You need to understand and be able to defend your choices around what does transformation look like? If we go back to the definition of some of these things, prosperity, um, uh, systems change, they often use terms that seem like they're serious and hard, but they're actually really quite wishy-washy. So what does it mean to fundamentally shift resource and authority flows in the system? Like, it feels like you're dancing right out to the true Scotsman fallacy right there. It's like, is it fundamental? What does that mean? Is it like, is there a scale of one to 10 for fundamentality? Um, but if you start with elders and you start with discussion of spirit and you start discussion with oral histories, you have at least identified kind of a, a, a full system. And you can then go forward and think about all of the sort of disruptions that have happened. The likelihood of someone defining um, a good set of metrics or good set of measurement toolkits in Canada going forward that doesn't have a strong reconciliation streak at its core. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I could be wrong. I've been wrong before. Um, I was doing my graduate work when everyone was citing RCAP. Um, and, and now, now it's now, of course, RCAP is long, long history. Uh, but I, I would probably start with that. And then once you have that, once you have that strong sense of, of story and spirit, you know, then sort of say, what does actually community prosperity mean? Spend the time, develop the sort of the sort of understanding of that. And then you can bring in those tools in the forms of, like I said, economists and census takers. I'm actually a big fan of using econometrics to sort of to study things, but I don't think you start there. I think you start with what with sort of a deeper sort of more historical sociological understanding and then you can then you can bring in these other questions so so that they don't become ends in themselves. Yeah, so they're not looking for data that fits into their solution. Exactly. That they bring into it, right? With their own exactly. heuristics that come in with a uh, economics. <laughs> yeah, and I think, I mean, the other thing I would do, again, you said I have unlimited money, yeah. uh, is I would spend a really long time, I would force everyone involved spending time learning about everybody else's methods. There's a lot of sort of method bigotry um, that happens in academia. It's like, well, I do this, so it's good. Well, I do that, so it's good. And the reality is that all of these are just small shards of a broken mirror. The mirror is our experience. We break them up. We try to make it sort of conceptual, you know, conceptually sound, we develop training metrics around it, but we forget that we are only looking at a small shard of that mirror. And if you can develop respect for other metrics, then you can then you can actually start to put it back together again because you can you can say, okay, I see what questions that can answer, and I see what questions I can answer, and I see what questions the third person can answer. And I know we're all interested in this first sort of a priori question. So how can we work together to do that? And I, I think that's often that's often done sort of 
very poorly, if at all. And I, I think it needs to be done much more often, much more frequently. Uh, there's nothing like teaching academics a bit of humility to potentially make for a better outcome. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time today. But I really appreciate you coming on and uh, the stories that you've shared and your insights into, uh, into our measuring what matters. Let me just say, well, first of all, thank you, Marshall. But secondly, um, you know, this is an important conversation to be having right now. Uh, and so I'm just so thankful that you're having it. Uh, and I would, anyone listening, anyone sort of in this project, I would sort of, I would remind them that um, systems change is hard. And, and yet it's crucial. Like I said, transformation is going to happen either way. Nobody buys beaver hats anymore. And so we can either, we can do this in a controlled way with at least some capacity to do the innovations that we need, or we can be forced to go through it. And I would rather the former. And I think what you're doing is going to be a really important part of that. Yeah.